consider the preeminence of the glory of God and, and to confront us, to confront us on how easily it is that we can become man-centered in our thinking. Question number one, what is the chief end of God? The chief end of God is to glorify God. Who is the most God-centered person in the universe? Answer, God. Who is uppermost in God's affection? God is. Is God an idolater? No, he has no other gods before him. (laughs) Do you feel most loved by God because he makes much of you? Or do you feel most loved by God because he frees you to enjoy making much of him forever? And we're getting to the core, so let me ask that question again. Do you feel most loved by God because he makes much of you? Or do you feel most loved by God because he frees you to enjoy making much of him forever? It's very easy to be swept into a Christianity that puts man at the center. And it's easy to think, well, I think it's good for me to be God-centered, but I'm feeling uncomfortable about God being God-centered. I, I feel great about Christ, me being Christ-exalting, but I'm not sure about Christ being Christ-exalting. Somehow that seems strange in my way of thinking or my way of speaking. So if the quiz caused some level of discomfort, you're not alone. God's God-centeredness made C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, uncomfortable in the beginning. And this is what he says. We all despise the one who demands continued assurance of his own virtue or intellect. We despise still more the crowd of people around that dictator or celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus, this picture both of God and his worshipers threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in, the, in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. It was hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. It was extremely distressing. Gratitude to God, reverence to God, obedience to God. I thought I could understand those. But, but, but this perpetual eulogy. It seemed to picture a God craving our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments. And so when C.S. Lewis read the Psalms, he he was frustrated. He he was blocked by the God-centeredness of God. To him, it seemed like a, a vain woman needing compliments. God's God-centeredness makes Eric Reese uncomfortable. Eric Reese is a professor at the University of Kentucky, published a book recently titled An American Gospel on Family, History, and the Kingdom of God. And he quotes this familiar verse in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus says. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then Reese is quoted as saying, who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago 
a complete historical stranger saying that we should love him more so than we should love our own family. Who is this egomaniac speaking these words? And so you can sense his frustration, his tension. There's a wall there. And that wall is, I just can't follow after a God who's that God-centered, who's demanding that from those who he created. And God's centered, God's God-centeredness is a stumbling block for every self-centered human heart. We all, or most of us, are aware of that. But it's not a problem for Peter, at least... It's not a problem for Peter now. I think Peter, as we can say, wrestled through that. But here in in this, when he gets to writing this letter, that's been wrestled down. And we know that. So let's just look back at chapter 1, verse 6. Verse six. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 6. And we're just going to see three places where he's wrestled that down. And, and for now, now, for Peter, the terminating point is the glory of God. That's what's that's what he's driving to. That's what's driving Peter. And he's trying to get everything to move in that direction. Chapter one, verse six. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith tested by fire may result in this tested genuineness of your faith. It has a a termination point. What is that? Termination point. Does this testing terminate on your faith? No, no. It strengthens your faith, which terminates in praise and glory and honor for Jesus. So all your various trials, all my various trials are meant for a particular person, a particular reason. That's to strengthen your faith. So that, in other words, the terminating point is the glory of God. Chapter 2, turn there, chapter 2, verse 12. Peter says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and... You're, you're leaving the church, you're walking out into the world, and you're trying to do these good deeds so they can see your good deeds and glorify you? No. You're going to live this way. You're going to suffer, in some cases, various trials. But you're doing it so people could see these good deeds and then glorify or reflect back to God. And then in our reading today, chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, he says, The end of all things are at hand. Uh Uh-oh. I didn't realize the end of all things were at hand. But Peter is saying, hey, the end of all things are at hand. We're living in the in the last days. We talked about that when we we're at that particular point. Well, OK, if it's the last days, what do we do? Do we shave our heads and sell all we have and run to the top of a mountain and wait for God to appear? No, no. He gives us very simple, practical application. You're in the last days. And so you want to pray. You want to love. You want to serve. In order that verse 11 The end of all things is at hand. You're doing these things in order that. So here's Peter's terminating point. God may be glorified. So whether it's your conduct, whether it's your various trials, whether it's the end times and the the things that you're doing here in these last days. The terminating point for Peter is the glory of God. And so one question we want to ask is, is that your terminating point? 
Are you doing these things, your good things, even in difficult times, so that God could be glorified? Are you rejoicing even in your trials, your various trials, because it's strengthening your faith so that you could glorify God? Are you loving? Are you serving? Are you praying so that you can glorify God? And two weeks ago or three weeks ago now, I I stated in the beginning or the first half of this sermon that the glory of God is perhaps the most critical subject in all of the Bible. And I divided my response to that statement into four different sections. The first two I talked about in that first sermon. I gave a definition of what glory is. And this is what I said. The glory, glory is the visible display of God's infinite weight and beauty. The visible display of God, which is celebrated by an eternal yes. And you remember in Luke chapter 2, there were shepherds that were keeping their flock by night and angels appeared and the glory of the Lord shone round them. In other words, the, the invisible character of God was showing up and we call that glory. And then the angels said, glory to God in the highest. In other words, praise God. So what I term that is the, is the glory cycle. When, when God's manifest presence, when his character shows up, we call that glory. His holiness on visible display. That's the glory of God. And when you see that, when you get in touch with that, you praise God. And that's called you glorify God. And so it's like a glory cycle. His glory shows up and then you give glory back. You say, yes. And the illustration was so perfect because I did a wedding yesterday. The illustration I I said was when the bride comes in, everybody stands up. And who's the most beautiful person in the room at that point? The bride. And everybody's looking towards the bride and saying, she's beautiful. She's radiant. And she's walking down the aisle. And what's the young man here on my left-hand side? What is he saying about his bride? Yes! Yes! Everybody knows she's the most beautiful person right now in this room. And she's coming towards me. Yes! And that's the glory cycle. Glory shows up. And when it does, in order to complete the expression of it showing up, you have to say something. You can't just say, oh, okay, here she comes. You have to you have to express it. And that expression is called glory. And so God's glory shows up in the incarnation. And what do we do? We give glory. It's that cycle. Well, that's another sermon. The second part of that is seeing the glory of God as the preeminent theme in all of the Bible. And we went through a number of scriptures that tested what I said and showed it to be true. And then the third and the fourth point, and I'm going to spend most of my time on the third point, is trying to ask and answer this question, why is God not an egomaniac? Is Eric Reese right? Who is this? egomaniac telling me what to do from 2,000 years ago. And why is God not an egomaniac? And then how does the the glory of God shape our lives today? I'll end with a couple of examples and maybe application points. So let's, let's begin by trying to ask and answer the question, why is God 
not an egomaniac. Why is it okay for God to be God-centered? Why is it okay for Jesus to pray in John chapter 17? Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory. I'm praying, God, that those you have given me, that they could be with me for this express purpose. They could see my glory. Why is it okay for Jesus to pray that prayer? But if I had prayed that prayer today and said, God, you've given me this 300 people here today. And I'm just praying they can see my glory today. Why is it okay for Jesus to say that? But if I had said that, you should have run out of the room. And I'll give three answers. One is the simplest and most profound. The main reason it's okay for God to say these kinds of things and not okay for you and I to say them is because you're not God. You might want to just turn to your neighbor and say, you know what? You're not God. And you don't want to respond back. Believe me, I know you're not God. That's actually a very difficult thing to to wrestle with. You and I are not God. You and I never have been God. You and I are not going to ever be God. And it's okay for God to do a lot of things it's not okay for you to do or for me to do. The eternal creator has has a vastly different position than the creation. And as much as it may be simple to say... Well, I'm not God. I know I'm not God. It's actually very difficult when it comes out how you live your life. And let me give you just an example, a near example here in First Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Remember, he says, show hospitality. And you remember back in those days, uh, Christians, preachers, evangelists are, are sort of running around the, the Middle East and they're coming to towns and proclaiming the gospel, but there's no Motel 6 to, to lodge in. They're not keeping the light on for you at those places. And so they sort of show up at the town square and somebody in the church needs to say, hey, you can spend a night or two with me. And God's saying, I'm sending these people around and make sure you show hospitality, but not just show hospitality. What does he say? Show hospitality without grumbling. In the Bible, grumbling is a way of complaining about how God is running the universe. Grumbling is like the kickoff of what Paul Tripp says is the glory war. The war that's happening between I want, I'm wanting glory and God's wanting, wanting glory. Grumbling exposes a belief that's taken root in the heart and the mind that you can get the job done better than God can. And so he's saying, do this without grumbling. So when, they, when it's your chance to step up, step up and do so without grumbling. And don't say, gosh, God, I would just wouldn't have picked this time. You know what you're saying at that point? Gosh, if I was in control, I really know how to make this work real well. And I'll give you some advice. In Numbers chapter 14, uh, these people are, are in the promised land. The Israelites who have been called out of slavery, called out of darkness, saved in so many miraculous ways. They say this, all the Israelites grumbled. They're in the promised land, and this is what they say. 
if we had only died in Egypt. I mean, why is the Lord bringing us into this land just to fall by the sword? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? We should choose another leader. Now that we're in the promised land, we sh- listen, we should choose another leader who will take us all the way back. Somebody who can part the Jordan River, take us through the desert, part the Red Sea, and we need a leader who can take us all the way back to Egypt. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites. Uh-oh. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed? I will strike them down with a plague and I will destroy them. Why? Because the, the beginning of grumbling is the beginning of you replacing God. So without a show of hands, who has trouble with grumbling? You see, it's easy to say, well, I know I'm not God. But see, when you're grumbling, what you're saying is, God, if you could just move out of the way, then I could get things going here in the right direction. And grumbling proves that that's planted in your heart and it needs to be rooted out. If grumbling gets all grown up, it looks like this in Acts chapter 12 from Herod. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne. He delivered a public address to the people and they shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise or give glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down and he was eaten by worms and died. What happened to Herod eventually happens to everyone who doesn't give glory to God. And where it happened for Herod in an instant, it will eventually happen to all people who try to stand in the way of God's glory and take it for themselves. That's called sin. And if somebody doesn't come in to arrest that sin, that's what happens. So the main reason it's okay for God to be God-centered and it's not okay for you and I to be self-centered is because we're not God. Number two. Uh, The second reason God is not an egomaniac is because all glory not terminating on God is idolatry. The second reason it's okay for God to be God-centered, but not for Paul to be Paul-centered, is because all glory given to something else other than God is called idolatry. And idolatry ends in a collapse the, the entire purpose of creation is to declare God's glory. The heavens, Psalm 19, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. Everything is made to declare the glory of God. And when you give glory to a created thing that was meant to declare glory, that's idolatry. Romans chapter 1 defines sin in this way. Giving glory to created things which are meant to declare glory. Sin, giving glory to something created, me, you, an object, a person, giving glory to something that was meant to declare glory, that's sin. 
Let me use a construction term that might be helpful just in terms of an illustration. You, you may be familiar with what's called a load-bearing wall. You know this? So you construct a house, and inside the house you have a bunch of walls, you know, that divides the kitchen and the bathrooms and the bedrooms and the closets. But some of the walls inside your house are called load-bearing walls. So whether you have a second floor or whether you have a roof, the weight of the roof or the weight of the second floor is, is coming down in a particular point, And the wall is built in a very different way. And it absorbs the weight and then distributes the weight to the foundation. So if you come into an old house and you say, you know, I'd like to tear out this wall and make this room bigger. I'd like to do this. That's okay. But you've got to make sure you're not tearing down a load-bearing wall. Because if you come into the house and say, I'd just like to tear down any old wall and you get a load-bearing wall, what happens? Collapse. All glory belongs to God. So God alone is the load-bearing wall. Yet if you, if you shift your glory to your parents, if you shift your glory to your spouse, if you shift your glory to your work, if you shift your glory to your child, all non-load-bearing walls, all those things are non-load-bearing. But if you load up on those walls, what will happen to your life? Collapse. They're not meant to carry the weight of that. They're meant to declare glory. They're not meant to carry glory. And so what are the first two commandments in Exodus chapter 20? You shall have no other gods before me. Number one. Number two. You shall not make for yourself any image, any idol and serve it. Why? Because God is designed to bear the weight of. Of glory, He's the only load-bearing wall in our lives. And so when we construct our lives on, to, on a non-load-bearing object, our lives end up collapsing. Therefore, Eric Reist from the University of Kentucky, God's God-centeredness is not egomaniac, is not egomania. God's God-centeredness is grace. See, Eric... If you build your life on your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife, it's not a load-bearing wall. And so it's not egomania that God would say to me or to you, Paul, don't load, don't load that on that wall. Because if you do, it will collapse on you. There's only one load-bearing wall. And I'm saving you from loading up all of your hopes and all of your dreams on this non-load-bearing wall. Eric, I'm saving you from something. I'm not coming in and trying to be an egomaniac. I'm trying to come in and be a savior from idolatry. From you loading up glory on something that was meant to declare glory. And now your life ends up in a collapse. C.S. Lewis answers really his own question. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflowed into praise. So he's reading through the Psalms and he's thinking, I don't like it when God says, praise me. That seems like a, a vain woman asking for compliments. But then this is what he sort of observes. I, I never noticed that all spontaneous enjoyment overflowed into praise. 
The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistress. Readers praising their favorite book. Praise of weather. Wines. Actors. Cars. Colleges. Countries. Children. Flowers. Rare stamps. Rare beetles. I never would praise a rare beetle, but I guess for Lewis, he knew somebody. But you see, everybody sort of got their thing. And whatever their their favorite thing is, the reason you know it is, is because they like to praise that. They like to grab your attention and say, would you come and look at this? Would you admire this? That's what the natural glory cycle is about. I hadn't noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they urge others to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? The psalmist is simply telling everyone to praise God. The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God is doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdity in denying to us what we delight to do about every other thing we value. Praising God or joining in praise of God is not a perpetual eulogy. It's an expression. It's a completion of joy. When you see it, you want to give praise to it because glory has come in. And when you see it, what do you want to turn and tell somebody else? Oh, come and see this with me. It's not egomania. I use this again in an illustration. What, what happens when you're on a basketball team and you're surrounded by 50,000 people and it's the last second shot and the, your team, your, your, your superstar, he makes the shot. And what happens with the 50,000 people? They turn to each other and say, I can't get the crabgrass out of my yard. I mean, can you help me with that? No, that's not what they say. Do you like microwave popcorn? I've never really liked microwave popcorn. I mean, no. When the ball goes through the hoop, what happens? It's a completion of joy. You go, yes, awesome, that's incredible. And you're then, if, especially, in, I'm sorry, this is a guy illustration. What do guys do? Guys then go back to the, the sports bar, right? And they get there in a hurry because what do they want to do? Watch the highlight of the shot that they just watched. And then high-five each other again. And they go, did you see that? And you go, I saw it. I saw it live and I saw it here. But somehow guys just want to say, but let's see it again. Let's enjoy it again. Let's celebrate again. And so you never get tired of something that's endlessly valuable coming every Sunday and praising the same object. Of high-fiving each other and say, yes, I remember it's so awesome. I'm so glad I got caught up in that. I'm so glad you showed me something in it. And so that's what happens with the glory of God. That's why it's not egomania. Because if you're doing that with a created object, no matter how rare that object is, it will leave you and your life will be a collapse. Imagine a young boy at four years old when a father leaves and doesn't come back. Come back. He shifts all of his weight to his mother. Imagine 20 or 18 years later when she calls and says, I have cancer. And 14 months later, she dies. What happens to his life? 
It's a collapse. And if he shifts to sports or he shifts to academics or he shifts to girlfriends or he shifts to a wife or he shifts to children or he shifts to a career or he shifts to a 401k, all those are non-load-bearing walls. That if you load up the glory on those walls, those things are not able to hold that and your life will just be one collapse after another and you'll be the person running from one non-load-bearing wall to another and I want you to say come with me and see see the load bearing wall see the glory of God and when you see that it'll be your savior from a life of collapse and you'll want to turn and tell other people do you see it do you see what I see and it won't be egomania it'll be grace it'll be glory One last quote from C.S. Lewis. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. When God says, here I am in all my glory, incomparable, infinite, immeasurable, unsurpassed. Be satisfied with me. Enjoy me. Celebrate who I am. Experience the height and the depth of the glory of God. The only way that glory is not the completion of real love is if there's something better than God. Something more pleasing, something more satisfying than God, something more glorious than God. And there isn't something more glorious or majestic than God. And there never will be. So it's not egomania. It's a grace that you could see that. And you could base your life on it, and it'll never collapse. Let me end with two quick ways of how the glory of God. I, I realize I could go into another sermon, so let me just give you two ways. How does this glory shape our lives? One, in everyday life, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. You know this verse. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, What does it say? Do it all for the glory of God. So Paul's trying to pick out sort of the most rudimentary, the most everyday thing. You're just going to eat and drink every day. And so anything that's sort of just the low level everyday activity or the thing that just happens once in a lifetime, like a wedding, whatever that is, whatever's happening in your life, in all cases, bring glory to God. And so how does that practically work out for us? So I'm at this wedding yesterday. I'm sitting at a table with my friends afterwards, and we're laughing about different things and having jokes, and we're we're admiring the couple that is a couple years younger than me now, and so they're dancing. And and what we're doing at this, this fun event is we're wringing out the joy of that event. We're trying to get... It was trying to, it's like a, uh, an orange. We're trying to squeeze all the joy out of that moment because we can't go back to that moment. So we want to absorb it all that we can. Think of your, I can say this now because we're near at the end of the service. Think of your favorite food. And you just, you just want to, you just want to say, yes, that's so awesome. That hot chocolate chip cookie, that steak, that Broccoli, I mean, whatever it is for you. You, you just say, yes, I'm just enjoying every moment of this 
food and now you're salivating for it. And you're, you're wringing out the joy in that moment. But that's not your terminating point. At the end of the day, you get on your knees and say, God, all those things were great. And they were good gifts from you. But there's only one thing that's glorious, and that's you. And thank you for giving me those good gifts. You see, you want to wring the joy out of those moments. You don't want to go, oh gosh, I might be afraid I'm enjoying it too much. No, enjoy it too much. Enjoy it all you can. But at the end of the day, understand your life doesn't terminate on that. Your life terminates on something else. So it's the day you get married or it's the day your spouse dies. Your life hasn't terminated on that person. And so his love endures forever, both on the first day and the last day. Second, final point, how does this help shape our lives? I got help from a missionary named John Patton. John Patton was born in Scotland in 1824. 34 years later, he got married. The month after he got married, he and his wife accepted a call to be missionaries in the South Pacific to an island called Tana, T-A-N-N-A. Tana was inhabited by cannibals. But they accepted the call to go to Tana and hopefully spread the gospel. A year after they arrived, they had built a small home. Mary had just given birth to their first son. One year after their wedding, Mary died of a fever. Three weeks later, the child died. And John Patton buried both his wife and his son all by himself. One of the gifts that Jesus had given John Patton to sustain sustain him in those difficult days were actually words from his dying wife. And this is what she said. She didn't grumble against God. But she said instead, I do not regret having left home and friends. If I had to do it over, I would do it. But I would do it with more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. You see, that's somebody whose terminating point is the glory of God. Because I confess when I read a story like that, my first thought is, no, we, we can't lose a wife. We, we can't lose a child. I mean, here are people who are willing to go to an, an island inhabited by cannibals. And, and why does this stuff happen? And why do I get so angry about it? It's because my life terminates on health, comfort, spouses, and children. But see, for Mrs. Patton, that wasn't her terminating point. Her terminating point was the glory of God. And what she corrected in my thinking was to say, Paul, you should say, yes, I would go back and do it again. But it would bring more joy even out of the difficult moments because this is my terminating point And I'm just about ready to arrive. And so we have to ask ourselves, what 
Do we understand the glory of God? And, and when we understand it, is our terminating point on ourselves? On another object that's meant to declare glory, not to hold the weight of glory? Or is it really on God? Let's pray together.